Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Irish Examiner podcast series on the War of Independence. I'm Mick Clifford. In today's podcast, we look at the lives and deaths of the two Lord Mayors of Cork who died in 1920 at the height of the War of Independence. Tomás McCurtain was murdered in his home in March of that year, and soon after succeeding him as Lord Mayor, his close friend Terence McSweeney was arrested and began a hunger strike. He died 74 days later in Brixton Prison. Joining me to discuss the lives and deaths of these two men is Gabriel Doherty, who lectures in UCC's School of History. Gabriel, if I could start by just asking you, would you just sketch out the background of both Tomás McCurtain and Terence McSweeney? Both were native Coconians. Uh, Tomás McCurtain was born outside the city in Mornabi, uh, but came into the city when he went to secondary school uh, at the North Mon. Uh, Terence McSweeney was a city boy uh, on North Main Street. And he first met Tomás McCurtain, albeit there were some years between them, at, at the North Mon. Um, it, there's a tendency to, to exaggerate the differences in the temperament between the two men. I mean, there was far more that united them than divided them. Both passionate Republicans, both absolutely committed to the restoration uh, of the Irish language. Tomás McCurtain, I suppose, simply by virtue of, of his family position to a certain extent, uh, followed a slightly different path uh, down the commercial route, albeit... Terence McSweeney was a commercial clerk uh, for many years. That's how he, he earned his livelihood. Uh, Terence McSweeney was m- a little bit more interested in the artistic side of the city, involved in, wrote poetry, uh, and involved in, as it were, the cultural infrastructure, was involved in a number of dramatic societies, wrote his own plays. Um, so would have been would have been probably a little bit better known on that front. Uh, Tomás McCurtain would have been better known, as it were, in the commercial life of the city. Uh, what really drove them together, in addition to their Gaelic League activities, was the foundation of the Irish Volunteers in the city in late, late 1913, when both men uh, were early recruits, helped to organise the, the original meeting and took senior positions. Uh, in the 1916 Rising, Tomás McCurtain was commandant of the Cork Brigade, Terence McSweeney was his uh, second in command. Both were caught up in, in the unfortunate series of events that, in effect, produced utter confusion and no rising in Cork, uh, something which, which really hurt both men. I think Ter- McSweeney even more, perhaps, than Tomás McCurtain. Hurt him in the sense that he was sorry he missed out on it and he felt he hadn't contributed. And felt guilty because, as many volunteers around the country felt guilty, that they, in effect, left the men in Dublin and the women in Dublin to fight on their own. Uh, and and for they had talked the talk and uh, preached the doctrine of physical force republicanism for many years. And it, it seemed, from their perspective... And I think 
outside the, the, the inner circle, as it were, to many people, that they had dropped the ball uh, at the critical moment. Uh, it, it, that was, they were being excessively harsh on themselves. The volunteers carried out a court-martial on both men in 1917 and found that they were absolutely guiltless because of the, the, na the secretive nature of the orders they were given, the conflicting orders, um, and the impossibility of knowing exactly what they were supposed to do uh, at any one point in time. But certainly the survivor's guilt, as it were, of, of having not risen, uh, having not kept faith with the past, having not kept faith with the presence of, of, of those fighting in Dublin, really haunted both men. And, and I think the, the broader Cork volunteers generally, uh, which I think is at least one of the reasons why when things start to, to get very hot in Cork during the War of Independence, Cork leads the fight. And we bring it forward to the opening shots of the War of Independence 1919 and 1920. Now, both men at that stage are running parallel operations in terms of their political lives and their lives in the volunteers, McCurtain um, being the leader and, and McSweeney is number one. And then we come to January 1920 and McCurtain is elected Lord Mayor. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the Cork Brigade had been split into three brigades at this point. Uh, so uh, Thomas McCurtain was Commandant Cork Number 1 Brigade, which encompassed the city and the surrounding areas, uh, with Terence McSweeney, his, his second in command. And likewise, when the municipal elections for the, the uh, urban areas took place in January 1920, the county elections took place uh, later in the year. Uh, Sinn Féin did exceptionally well, standing interestingly on a joint ticket with the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, where all the Sinn Féin candidates, as it were, stood to represent both. Uh, so it helped to hoover up much of the Labour vote. Uh, so both men polled very, very well. Um, Tomás McCutton slightly more than Terence McSweeney uh, at this point because he was uh, the higher profile. Uh, both men are elected to the City Council and Tomás McCurtain, again by virtue of his senior position within the volunteers, I think primarily, is nominated for the position of Lord Mayor uh, and, and is elected almost without dissent. There are a couple of, uh, some voices who are a little bit concerned about uh, his background, but generally speaking, he was, a, he was a popular choice. And McSweeney was his deputy? There was no, I think, formal position of deputy uh, at this point, albeit this in, in many cases where, as now, where Lord Mayor isn't available, somebody would step into his shoes. Uh, but, I mean, he was always understood, the two men were considered to be almost Siamese twins, uh, so uh, on any occasion where Tomás McCurtain couldn't, uh, as well, represent the office, Terence McSweeney was understood as, as standing in. Okay, and then we're, he's less than two months in office. We come to Patrick's week in March. Now, that evening, the evening that McCurtain was murdered, there was a shooting on Pope's Key, was it, was earlier a, that evening? An RIC man was, was killed. Uh, and this was a significant raising of the stakes in Cook City. There had been intimidation of the police, boycotting of the police. Uh, but for somebody to be simply shot, as far as the police were concerned, in cold blood, uh, was something which they were not prepared to countenance. Uh, interestingly, McCurtain had, uh, on his way home, had sort of expressed his condolences with, with the widow. Uh, so there is some discussion as to uh, who actually ordered uh, the shooting. Uh, Has but, it ever been established whether McCurtain had... Well, uh, I, I don't think, I think primarily precisely because he, he died within a few hours uh, of the shooting. I mean, the RIC, at this point, the, the volunteers were still reluctant to, to shoot dead policemen, even though, of course, two RSC men had been killed 
at Salahed Beg more than a year before, but the orders coming down from headquarters from Richard Mulcahy, uh, who was as well the chief of staff of the volunteers, was that any such operations would have to be cleared at headquarters before being carried out at a local level, even though that really wasn't feasible. Uh, but certainly the action of Tomás McCurtain in expressing his condolences would seem to suggest that he wasn't necessarily uh, aware of, of, of what had gone on. Or is it possible he was playing the political Lord Mayor with one hand? being duplicitous. But on, on the basis of this, everybody knew that he was Commandant of Cook Number 1 Brigade. It wasn't exactly a secret. Yeah. Uh, that, that he was, to a certain extent, taking a risk in uh, being seen to express... Uh, his condolences and to to the the family of a uh, member of the RIC. And then, or later that evening, McCurtain is at home in Blackpool, and like a lot of families at the time, there was extended family staying in the house. And there had also been the family had been raided on a number of occasions. They were no strangers to calls and knocks on the door in the middle of the night. Uh, and from what I understand, I don't think there was necessarily any awareness that this was going to be anything other than a routine knocking up, as it were, and, and search, especially given what had happened earlier on in the evening. There doesn't seem to be any preparations made by Tomás McCurtain for the possibility of reprisal. He's sleeping at home. Uh, everybody knew where his home was. So there doesn't seem to be any awareness on his part that he might have been the target that evening. But you're right, yes, in terms of the, the family who were present, uh, there were a number of his own children, uh, relatives, in-laws, and so on and so forth. It was, it was a reasonably big... Uh, house. First of all, was it soldiers, RIC, or whom was it determined? Well, the, the, it was, of course, whoever carried it out was had no carried no insignia. They, were, they wore no uniforms. Faces blackened. Uh, albeit at the inquest, it was revealed that an RIC button was found close to the locality. And all the testimony at the the uh, court of inquiry, the inquest, seemed to indicate that it was it was the RIC. People, members of the RIC, were seen coming in and out of what was then the barracks on King Street, which is now, of course, McCurtain Street. Uh, there, was a cur- there, there was a curfew uh, in place at that point. Uh, so anybody who was on the street who, who didn't have business to be there uh, was, was in danger of being arrested. So to have a large group of, of men uh, with arms uh, marching, as was pointed out by one witness, in military fashion, and the RIC was, was a paramilitary organisation. The British themselves used the term to describe the RIC, uh, many veterans of the British Army served there. I mean, every single shred of evidence pointed to to the fact that it was the the RIC. Okay, and there, and as well in terms of the evidence, Gabriel, there is no question. But when they arrived at that house that night, they sought out T- Thomas McCurtain. Their intention was to kill him. Yes, I mean, the, no the, question. There's no intention of arrest uh, operation. Uh, that they asked to to find him where he is. He comes out onto the landing, and he's simply shot. He's standing there on the landing. Yeah, yeah. And his, his son, Tomás Og, uh, was looking through the keyhole uh, and saw the whole thing. Uh, he was a very, very young child uh, at that time. But, of course, he himself uh, had uh, went on to a, a career in the IRA after after independence. It, he was, he was, was he reprieved from a death sentence at yes, one stage? Yes, uh, during, the, during the period of the emergency. Okay, and they, they, they murder him there. It's quite obviously an assassination. What is the reaction in terms of locally, their Lord Mayor, internationally, and what impact did it have on the War of Independence at that point? Well, I suppose one, one point should note that in addition to the actual uh, assassination, later that night, uh, 
the army carried out a raid uh, on the house, uh, including searching the very bedroom where his his corpse was laid out. Uh, so that was seen to add insult very much to to fatal injury. Uh, the the news is sensational to have, uh, and and uh, even from the very earliest times, the, the rumours are that it is the RIC who have been involved. Albeit many of the newspapers are a little reluctant to print that in case they themselves become uh, a target. Uh, but it causes a sensation. More in Britain and Ireland, not so much necessarily internationally uh, at this point. What really catches the international headlines uh, is the verdict of the inquest, uh, which which does generate into global headlines when it finds that uh, the people responsible and culpable for his death aren't just the policemen involved, even though they are identified and the local commander Swansea is, is, is named, but that it was in effect British the British government in Ireland, including Lloyd George, his name personally, uh, and, and and the other uh, members of the and British that, And that verdict, Gabriel, was that delivered through a, a, a jury selected from people in court? Yeah, and, and, and remember, this was a jury drawn from ratepayers, uh, so it would not have been necessarily from the social class that would have been instinctively uh, sympathetic or considered to be instinctively sympathetic to Sinn Féin. Many of them would have been considered to have been home rulers, but so overwhelming was the evidence uh, that the finger could only be pointed towards the RSC, but it, it's the others who are named in addition to the RSC that really gave the verdict its international impact. And did that up the ante in terms of the war of independence in Cork afterwards? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, for for the police to to take out, uh, in effect, <laughs> the, the first citizen of of the city uh, was something which inevitably was going to anger large numbers of, of members of of the volunteers. Uh, and, and, and of course, the funeral is stage-managed uh, and, and is, is really a, a first-class affair. In that sense, it's slightly different, let's say, from the funeral of Terence McSweeney, later on, where the British have learned their lesson uh, and that they do everything they possibly can to, to reduce the size of the funeral, to eliminate any suggestion of a militaristic uh, dimension. So the funeral of Tomás McCurtain would be even though the actual numbers of people turning out was similar, but was much more an impressive affair in terms of the number of volunteers who were participating in, in the cortege, uh, the sheer military efficiency with which the, the proceedings are conducted. Um, so, and again, the fact that a young father is, is executed in his own home in front of his children and, and his pregnant wife, and of course his wife miscarries, uh, oh, sorry, uh, has a stillborn child uh, uh, two months later. Uh, and again, this just compounds uh, the sense of trauma. Okay, and then, as we see, life has to go on as it always must. It's going on in very traumatic times. His friend, close colleague, Terence McSweeney, takes over the mayorship. How long after McSweeney took office was he arrested? And why? what was the premise for his arrest? The, in in mid-August, uh, he was arrested during a British Army raid on uh, City Hall, the, the nominal reason for the gathering in City Hall was a dull court, uh, which were then up and running uh, across the city. And, and the court had been held uh, in, the, uh, in the premises slightly earlier. I suppose, ju- ju- just for clarity, Gabriel, because I, I suppose a lot of people perhaps wouldn't be familiar with the detail, but we're talking about a period that the Dáil, which was formed in 1918 into 1919, had decided they were going to set up their own courts, notwithstanding the British... Um, being here, still still being in control. So these were separate courts that were set up under the doll. And, 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 and it's very interesting. I mean, there was nothing the British could really do about them. There were courts of arbitration where both parties agreed to refer their dispute to a third party, which, of course, 
now anybody can do it now so it, it took as it were the advantage of a loophole in the law uh, but it certainly it, 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 they were devastating in terms of uh, the impact upon the British court system almost it, that completely in effect disappears right. in, in late 1920 so a Dahl court had been held uh, and Mc, was McSweeney at that Dahl court? No, McSweeney wasn't at the Dahl court but he was in the building because he was Lord Mayor uh, what, what was perhaps more important was that there had been a meeting of senior brigade officers uh, of Cork Number no. One Brigade, uh, being held as it were under cover of the the, the meeting. Uh, whether somebody uh, passed information on to the authorities, or whether it was simply chance, I suppose we can never be quite sure. But uh, a raid was launched, and uh, all uh, of of those involved were, were caught up. In terms of the specific charges uh, against McSweeney, these were uh, pretty flimsy. I mean, he was there were three documents. One was his own speech, inaugural speech, the famous speech where he's saying it's not those who can inflict the most, but those who can endure the most, which, of course, had been delivered four or five months before uh, and had been published in the newspapers. So if he was going to be arrested for that, there had been plenty of opportunities to do so. Secondly was the Pledge of Allegiance to Doyle Aaron of Cork Corporation, as it was then, back in January, when uh, Tomás McCurtain had been uh, elected Lord Mayor. So if that had been illegal, again, the British had had months and months to, uh, to arrest anybody uh, who'd been involved in, in the passing of that resolution. Um, and the third thing, which was probably the most damning, was that in the drawer in his desk was found a cipher for the police communications, where the, the, these were, of course, coded, uh, and the key to that code had been found in his desk. Uh, it wasn't found on his person. Uh, and, and that would have been a means to tap into the, exactly, police yeah, communications. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and the IRA were had been very, very successful, especially in Cork, uh, in doing that, in both in terms of telegraphic communications, in terms of uh, communications, written communications coming from Victoria Barracks, where they'd had individuals loyal to them who were passing information on surreptitiously uh, and the like. That, that was the thing that really probably sealed his face. Uh, the other two documents were, however, part of the formal charge. So his, his, his sentence is, is detained in Cork jail initially, along with... The, uh, the other members of the brigade. And there they joined the hunger strikers in court jail who'd begun their hunger strike the day before. And had that been in a separate arrest? Yes, the, 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 there was basically all the Republican prisoners in court jail, which is about 60 or so at this point, who'd been arrested at various different points over the pre preceding months. From, and it, they weren't just based in court, these were from Limerick, from Tipperary and, and the like. So the, the, this new group arrives in, led by McSweeney, they joined the hunger strike. Uh, and, then, and just at that point, Gabriel, you, you, you have, as you say, about 60 volunteers there in Cork Prison. They all decided to go on hunger strike. Was that a stated policy within the IRA Sinn Féin at the time that on arrest go on hunger strike or was it an optional thing or what, what was the status? The, of it? The, the, the British had found it practically impossible to deal with the hunger strike. Just to give a little bit of legal background, yeah. uh, during the, suff the suffragettes, of course, seven or eight years before had been the first group to use it as an organised tactic. A legal decision had been arrived at to say that the government had a duty to keep prisoners alive. Uh, so when hunger strikers, in, after the Easter Rising, had gone on strike, uh, for example, in Mount Joy in 1917, the government had resorted to force feeding. But that had been a catastrophic on goal to most, uh, Thomas Ashe, uh, who was one of the most senior Republicans, uh, arguably, at least senior to De Valera to that point, arguably the most senior Republican. He'd, he'd fought with Dick Mulcahy in 1916 in Ashburn. Yeah, yeah, and he was he was 
senior figure within the Gaelic League. He was president of the, the IRB at that point. So a very, very senior Republican. He died on, uh, as a result of force feeding. A, a monumental funeral had taken place in Dublin, similar to, in fact, bigger than the, the O'Donovan Rossa funeral in 1915. And this had, had served to energise Sinn Féin uh, in late 1917 and also occurred at precisely the time that Sinn Féin adopted the Republican constitution and really was the start of their, their, their path to electoral victory a year later in the 1918 general election. So the British had a problem. In the, Initially, they deal with the problem by, in effect, granting de facto political prisoner status to Republican prisoners. They don't use the term as yet, but they, they, they grant them concessions from prison work, from prison dress, free association uh, and the like. Then a, a whole series of new hunger strikes took place in 1919, especially in 1920. There was a large hunger strike in, in Mount Joy. Uh, and the British response to that is to finally introduce a political prisoner category. Um, I'm sorry, can I just... The premise for all of these hunger strikes was we are political prisoners, therefore should we, that, 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 that was, was, the, that, that was yeah. the continuing premise. And, and, but that, and this is where there is a, there is a difference between as well this initial approach to hunger striking in 1917 through to 19 spring of 1920, and then once they, they get the political prisoner status, the focus then changes. So the hunger strike in Cork jail was the men saying, we have been kept in jail for weeks, months, in, in Michael Fitzgerald's case from, from Moy, who had been allegedly involved in the attack, the fatal attack on prisoner, on, on soldiers in Fomoy uh, a year before, which had led to the suppression of the Doyle. Uh, he'd been arrested and had been kept in jail for nearly a year uh, and had been constantly remanded in custody with no evidence really being being presented against them. Uh, so the prisoner said this is in effect a form of internment without trial. You don't have the legal power to do that. Uh, so we are going to go on hunger strike to demand our release, not status per se, but right. but release. Uh, and and did, sorry, just to, in terms of detail, did that apply only to prisoners who were on remand? prior to any conviction. Well, the, 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 but, and this is, of course, the case with Terence McSweeney, because yeah. Terence McSweeney joins the hunger strike. He then is court-martialed in Victoria Barracks, found guilty. He's uh, already on hunger strike at this point, but he says he's going to continue on hunger strike until he's, he's released. So in that sense, uh, in one sense, he's different from the strikers in Cork Jail. Uh, the vast majority, and there were one or two convicted prisoners who joined the strike as well, but McSweeney certainly was, was in a category of his own because of the and would that would, would that would that be owing, and did he consider it valid on the basis of his political status as Lord Mayor? He, uh, it's impossible to know exactly what he was going through his mind because, of course, he's arrested. Yeah. And even though he, has, he, he, he talks constantly to his family when he goes over to Brixton because he's moved over to Brixton, I think mainly because they think that this might persuade him to come off the hunger strike. The British had a tactic of... Uh, deporting prisoners from Irish jails who were on a hunger strike who, over to English jails. And it was understood that many of them would be allowed to, to break their strike uh, so as a means of, uh, because it was considered to be a double, a double burden. McSweeney doesn't break his strike. How far into his hunger strike did he face the court martial and how long he, after he was, that? It was only a day or two. And how long after that then was he transferred to Brixton? It is practically the same day. So now you have the scenario where most of them are still on hunger strike in Cork Jail, and that continues. And separate to that, you've McSweeney over in Brixton. Yeah. Now, the, the, what the British do is they start releasing some prisoners from jail, from Cork Jail, uh, where the, they felt that there really wasn't much evidence. Because, of course, when man, many people have been arrested simply as part of a general swoop of intelligence gathering, where they'd be subject to questioning, not because they were necessarily ever going to be brought to trial. Uh, a number of others are then deported to various different British uh, prisons. So the the number on jail on hunger strike in Cork jail then reduced 
uh, down to, to 11 who formed the core of the hunger strike then for the remainder of August, September and on until the fatalities in October. Right. And so you've McSweeney over there. Now, as he's going on, and as we know, I think it was 74 days, ultimately, as this is going on, what kind of pressures are, is there pressure building up on the British government on the basis of his status? Absolutely. I mean, it's because of his status, because of uh, what had happened to Tomás McCurtain, because he was a, a, the father of a young daughter who, who he'd barely seen. I mean, he'd been married two or three years at this point, and his daughter, he'd barely seen her. So it, it had all, and he was a poet and a playwright. He was a handsome man. So, I mean, he had all the elements, as it were, uh, of, of, of a great story. And, and the British do start coming under extreme pressure from within sections of the British establishment, even many unionists say that this is bad policy on the part of the British government. Because to, to create a martyr. To, to create a martyr, exactly. It wasn't necessarily for humanitarian reasons, from their point of view, but political reasons. But many did uh, agitate on humanitarian grounds. Uh, and in addition to this, you then started having a whole series of pressures internationally in India, in many parts of the empire, especially India, which... Uh, had its own grievances against British government over many years. And, of course, you'd had the Amritsar massacre not too long before. So uh, the issue of Indian self-government was, of course, very high on the agenda. And the idea of the hunger strike, which was something which was very much part of the Indian as it was of the Irish tradition. But I think it's in America where the real pressure grows. De Valera is in America trying to lobby uh, for recognition of the Irish Republic and, and fundraise. And, of course, McSweeney comes in, Absolutely in the centre of that. You also, of course, have a presidential election in America going on, and the Irish try to get, try to exert pressure on one or the other candidates to try and put pressure on the British government as a means of winning over uh, the Irish vote. Neither candidate really rises to the bait, as neither candidate had risen to the bait of, of De Valera to try and promise recognition. But it is, it is part of the broader discussions surrounding the, the debate. The American newspapers are all over the story. Uh, I mean, all the major American newspapers have this as a front-page story for about a month. The, the one thing that takes it off the paper is uh, there's a huge terrorist uh, strike uh, bombing in Wall Street, uh, the largest loss of life from a, a terrorist incident before 9-11. Uh, it was an anarchist bombing. And, and that's, it takes something of that magnitude to knock the McSweeney strike uh, off the front page. And at this period as well, Gabriel, are there pressures within the IRA or, or, or within Sinn Féin in terms of McSweeney to, and pressures on his family, for example? Should he continue? Should he quit? Do we know much about that? We, we don't necessarily a huge amount. There is a report that his wife uh, did not want him to go on hunger strike. I mean, she was very fearful uh, at this point that the British government when they said that there were going to be no future releases. Uh, remember that the nature of government had changed because of the general election in 1918. You now had a uh, cabinet that was dominated by hardline Tories. Uh, you had people like Bona Lore, you had people like Arthur Balfour, who had been Chief Secretary of Ireland during the Land Wars in the 1880s, who'd overseen the Mitchellstown Massacre. Uh, so th the perception was, and, it's, and also the fact that it occurs in August. Lloyd George is away on holiday. So, in effect, Bona Law is left to mind the shop, and, and he's known as an extremely hardline unionist that had been willing to support the OC unionists during the third home rule crisis to whatever length they've been prepared to go. Uh, and, and he lays down the line that there will be no release, uh, that McSweeney is convicted, that the men in Cork uh, 
cannot be released until they are tried and they can't be tried until they come off hunger strike. Uh, so Terence McSweeney's wife is very fearful uh, because there seems to be no change in the British policy. With the hunger strike in Mountjoy, which had gone on for several weeks, but the British had cracked. Uh, whereas at this point, so definite is the line taken at the outset, uh, and, and the British don't waver from it, uh, really, at any point. And was there pressures within the family between McSweeney's sister and his wife? The, the, again, the, there, was, there was a falling out subsequently, certainly, between the sister and the wife, and there's a tendency to, to read back during the, the hunger strike. Uh, it's impossible, to, of course, to know exactly what went on um, between them. Uh, I suppose one would, would say that it, it, they wouldn't be human if, if the dilemma of seeing their, their brother... And remember that McSweeney's sisters were, were hardline Republicans themselves, whereas his wife had not come from that background. She came from a wealthy... She was part of the Murphy Brewing uh, Murphy Brewing Brewers, family. yeah. Uh, albeit she, she then goes, she becomes an ardent Republican. Uh, but so the, the backgrounds of the two families, as it were, were different. The, I think the temperaments uh, of the McSweeney sisters are, are, different, are different from his wife. Uh, but ultimately, they're subject to pressures that are, are outside their control, uh, and again, if there were problems, uh, it's inconceivable that there wouldn't have been, have been problems because they're being faced with so many ethical dilemmas. Um, Do we have anything in terms of direct communication between the likes of Collins, Mulcahy and McSweeney? Collins, Collins was reported to be not enthusiastic. I mean, he was, he was a close friend uh, of McSweeney. He knew McSweeney pretty well uh, at this point, even though... Uh, of course, Collins was more a Dublin man and had spent time in he London. He Cork at 15. Yeah, yeah. rather than... than but, but he certainly... I mean, remember that uh, McSweeney was a TD uh, in the Dole and, and had had extensive dealings uh, with him and, and was a senior figure within the IRA command structure. Uh, it seems that Collins is, is reluctant, partly because I think he realises that the British this time are serious and are not going to release under any circumstances... Uh, and, and he's fearful for the life of his friend. Uh, I suppose there's always a, a fear as well that would somebody break uh, under the strain? Uh, I think anybody who has read anything produced, written by Terence McSweeney in the decade and a half leading up to the hunger strike uh, would realise that he was, he was a martyr in the making. I mean, he was absolutely, whatever course of action, and even his enemies would testify to whatever course of action he chose, he would never, once he made up his own mind, philosophically, theologically, he, would, he was absolutely determined to see it through. So I think Collins would, have had no, would probably have had no doubts on, on that front. But there was always a danger that the family might break. Uh, and, and certainly the British said, if, if ever they become unconscious, the doctor said, it's our medical duty. If he ceases to be master of his own will... Uh, to administer food. And they do this just at the very last week of the strike when he does lose consciousness. And, and at that period, um, as well as I understand that relations broke down with the family to some extent that they weren't allowed into him and they weren't present when he actually yeah, died. Just, just in the last day or two, uh, the British who had, because of the political prisoner status that he enjoyed, the British had allowed more extensive visiting rights uh, to his family than would have been the case. Then certainly was the case of the prisoners in Cork uh, for a long time, even though the, the British relented as well. Uh, but the British start believing, first of all, that they start suspecting that the family are, are surreptitiously feeding him, even though, of course, the doctors are inspecting him uh, and, and that the doctors consistently report back to the authorities, nobody is, is, is surreptitiously feeding him. And you start to have these 
ridiculous stories that the, the the communion wafer that is being he's being administered has some sort of life uh, giving properties, as it were. Um, but certainly, just before uh, it, when he becomes delirious and in his in his, his uh, in his last agonies, uh, his sisters are thrown out of the jail. Uh, they're not allowed to to visit him. The ostensible excuse was that he needed constant medical attention uh, at this point. But I think it's certainly because the, the British didn't want the family to be there, and, and, and they're not there. And, and even when he does die, the British deliberately delay uh, and obstruct the word getting out. He dies around four o'clock in the morning, it's about half eight, before they allow Father Dominic out uh, of the jail in order to, to pass word. Before going into the aftermath, while this is going on, as you said, Gabriel, you still have the hunger strike back in Cork Jail. How did that end and did any, how many men lost their lives there? The, about a week before McSweeney and Joseph, a week before McSweeney died, the first prisoner on the Cork hunger strike, Michael Fitzgerald, who'd been uh, arrested a year before, he, he dies. And then later the same day uh, of McSweeney, Joseph Murphy from Powell Duff Road uh, passes away. Uh, it's a, it's a strange situation for Joseph Murphy, precisely because McSweeney dies early in the morning. All the newspapers cover it uh, very extensively. He dies very late at night. So even, let's say, the cork, the evening echo, uh, as it was then, uh, still, is still reporting him as being alive in its latest edition uh, that day. And, and the following morning, then, the, practically all the coverages of, of Terence McSweeney, even though Joseph Murphy does get, does get his coverage. Uh, so to a certain extent, the, the Murphy uh, death was overshadowed. If, if he had died first thing in the morning and McSweeney had died later at night, the situation might have been rather different. But the, the, the remaining nine men remain on hunger strike uh, for about another three weeks. Uh, so they're well beyond, they're about, I think this is the 94th day. There's, there's some... Some of them are on hunger strike for 94 days. Yeah. Uh, it's, there's some debate as to exactly when you start the hunger strike. Do you start the clock at 12 o'clock at midnight? Do you start it at 11 o'clock, which is the time that they stopped, uh, that they announced their hunger strike on the day that they started uh, and the like. But, I mean, it, it was it was awful. I mean... How did it end? They came off hunger strike. They were, they were ordered off hunger strike by uh, Arthur Griffith uh, and they obeyed. Even though Griffith technically was a leader of Sinn Féin, didn't have a role in the volunteers, and they were volunteers. Uh, De Valera, who was over in America, uh, isn't directly involved. Uh, but Griffith, in effect, saying that there, there is no point uh, in continuing this because the British will allow you all to die. Uh, they're not going to release you, which is your demand. That's evident. Uh, and whatever political traction uh, there may have been in terms of the, the first two deaths, that there will be no more uh, from, from any subsequent deaths. Okay, and McSweeney dies, and obviously the British and presumably the volunteers, Collins, Griffith, all see this as a major political event, the funeral once more. There's an attempt to bring him back to Dublin, but they have a, a funeral in Dublin without the body. The body's diverted to Cork. Interesting, it just strikes me, some 50 years later, we had... Uh, in. in However, people might regard it was certainly a very different phase of an ancient conflict. Frank Stagg, the hunger striker, there was a similar issue when he died in a British jail and yep. uh, the Irish government at the time ensured that it didn't come to Dublin. But nevertheless, so in court... But one should, one should note that, uh, and this is probably one of the differences with Stagg and some of the other cases, McSweeney is given a huge funeral in London, yes. uh, in, in Southwark Cathedral, uh, and uh, Bishop Amigo, who was the, uh, the bishop of the diocese, is 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 regarded with great uh, fondness by many Republicans for the simple fact that he had allowed 
between to receive religious ministrations, the fact that he does allow a full funeral uh, to be granted. Uh, it's a it's a huge funeral inside the cathedral itself. And then, as you say, the the, the plan. Oh, that have been mainly Irish expats, or many many Irish expats. But you do have a number of of at that stage, you had a number of mayors of the various different London boroughs, and they all turn up. Uh, so uh, and 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 when the cortege is going through the. The streets of London, there's no restrictions placed on that similar to what was placed ultimately on the funeral in Cork. You have many policemen standing to attention uh, as as the cortege passes. Uh, so certainly that he, he was, the, the, the respect with which the funeral was accorded in, in London is in marked contrast to how the, the, the rest of the proceedings are handled, where in effect the, the British body snatch uh, the remains at Hollyhead. The original plan, which was had been publicised in which the British government, as far as the family were concerned, had given their agreement to that the body would be returned to Dublin, that there would be a, in effect, a mock funeral. It wouldn't, of course, be the, the full funeral. Uh, but they, the, the parade would take through the centre of Dublin. The body would then tra be transported to Cork by train, and then you would have the removal that evening to the North Cathedral and the, 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 the proper funeral the following day. But the British seize the body, uh, literally kick the family off the train and, and start beating the men uh, with truncheons off the train. Uh, the body is then removed to a British Admiralty ship. Uh, it then is taken over to Cove. Uh, nobody in Cove is, is prepared to touch the coffin because they're aware of the family's wishes. And the family at this point had continued up to Dublin. Uh, so you have this really bizarre situation where the British then seize the body again use a little admiralty tug to take it up to the estuary with black and tans and auxiliary, with auxiliaries uh, on board. It comes into the docks. The, the, the coffin is then put on the, the dock side. Uh, and again, nobody will touch it. Uh, and the, the British basically, after a few hours, said, if nobody takes this coffin, we're bringing this up to the barracks and we'll bury it next to Thomas Kent. Uh, We've been executed in, exactly in 1916. 16. And of course, whose remains... Uh, were very difficult to locate uh, subsequently. Right, yeah. uh, as, as it happened, at, just at that time, the family did arrive from Dublin by train uh, and it is arranged for the, the coffin to be removed with full uh, pomp and circumstance. And you're you la la laying in state in, in City Hall? In City Hall, sorry, you're, for, sorry. It's in City Hall initially and then it's taken the following day. It's removed to in the evening to, to the cathedral. Okay. It's the following day after that. And find a major funeral... But again, even out there, that the British, as had done, as they had done with the funerals of Michael Fitzgerald and uh, Joseph Murphy, who's, who'd been buried two or three days before, the British put very severe restrictions upon uh, the, the size of the cortege. Only a hundred people were allowed to march. There would have been probably tens of thousands marching uh, in the formal cortege had they been allowed to, but only a hundred are allowed to do so. No volunteers are allowed to march in formation. In fact, you have this bizarre situation where. The, a group of Cork ex-servicemen who are seeking to attend the funeral, who are marching a formation, are stopped and have a very tense standoff with the British Army, in which whose ranks they had just uh, had recently been serving. Uh, because the, the British saying, we've told that, that there can be no militaristic displays, even by veterans of the British Army. Uh, so, the, and again, that, that served to, to compound already the resentments arising from the death and hunger strike, and then... The, the extreme resentment arising from, in effect, the snatching of the body. His death had a major impact on the war. Would most of that impact have been in terms of 
propaganda and demonstrating to the rest of the world this is what the British are trying to do and that in itself feeding into what ultimately led to the, the, the truth? I mean, it was partly propaganda as, as the whole strike had been propaganda uh, and and it had been very, very well managed by the Republican uh, propaganda side. Uh, but it, it, there's also more sort of militaristic uh, consequence. Uh, it's it's precisely the autumn of 1920 when things really start descending into anarchy, uh, in Cork especially, but in Ireland generally. Uh, I've expressed this this way in, in different places. It's the hunger strikes are the mood music uh, to to the deteriorating situation. Uh, so by the time of, of uh, Fitzgerald's death and, and then the, the deaths of uh, Murphy and McSweeney, I mean there are shootings every single day in Cork uh, at some place. And not necessarily fatal shootings, but ambushes. Um, of course, then you also have, uh, on the day after the McSweeney funeral, you have the first execution, Kevin Barry, uh, who'd been arrested during the funeral under the terms of the Restoration Order of Order in Ireland Act, um, and, and is the first of the executed prisoners. And of course, you then also have the whole series of events that follows Bloody Sunday, occur two or three weeks later. You have burning the Michael ambush, the burning of Cork, so, I mean, Cork, Cork becomes just the cockpit uh, of the military strength. And would you attribute a huge amount of that to... I, 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 I mean, it's difficult to come up with a, yeah. a mathematical expression, but certainly, I mean, a, uh, yes, I mean, the, the volunteers were very angry. They'd lost two of their leaders, uh, the, the two leaders of the Cork Number 1 Brigade, uh, and I think there's a determination on, on their part to make the British pay for it. In terms of the two Lord Mayors, Gabriel, both, I suppose, in Cork and what you might say in a broader historical context, McSweeney is always put at a bigger hierarchy. I presume that's because of the nature of his death. Is, is McCurtain done a disservice in that respect? Uh, probably a little bit. Uh, it's important to note that Terence McSweeney had no role to play in that. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's not something that no, that no, he wants to. But I suppose the fact that his hunger strike does take place over three months, uh, as opposed to a single shooting plus the inquest and the inquest verdict, uh, and the fact that McSweeney comes after McCurtain, it's also accompanied by the, the the deterioration in the public order situation, and again, who he was. Uh, so it, it probably is fair to say that his death probably generated more domestic and international uh, attention and, and publicity. But had McCurtain's not already occurred, of course, McSweeney wouldn't have been the, the commandant of the Court Number One Brigade and, and Lord Mayor. So there's an inextricable link between the two. And of course, as of course there had been an inextricable link between them going all the way back to their school days. And finally, Gabriel, the hunger strike, the status of McSweeney, the context of the war at the time and all that, did that do something for the idea of a hunger strike and the role that would play subsequently, not just here, but in other countries as well? Well, well it's important to note that the hunger strike was in effect abandoned by the Republicans uh, at, during the rest of the War of Independence, precisely because they realised that the British are going to allow those to, to die on hunger strike. In that sense, the British won, I suppose, from their point of view, a victory in the sense that they neutralised this tactic, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, the cost of, of getting the, the Republicans to abandon their hunger strike had been so great, uh, as the famous saying, many more victories like that and they'll be ruined. Uh, it, but it certainly, it, it globally, absolutely, I mean, it, it, such was the attention 
that was generated both on the hunger strike as a tactic and and also on as were well, the Irish cause uh, that that it it helped to popularise both. Probably the most famous student of the Terence McSweeney's hunger strike was was Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, now again, I repeat a point I made earlier on that uh, hunger striking had already and fasting and uh, had already been part of the uh, an Indian ethic. Gabriel Doherty, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. That's it, folks. That's the first episode of the Irish Examiner podcast series marking the centenary of the War of Independence. Next week, we take a look at one of the seminal events of the period, the burning of Cork. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on iCloud, iTunes, Spotify, all the platforms. And you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. <laughs>